have to present a very difficult choice to you. Okay, I'm listening. We've gone very musical with this Maritime series, so I want to ask you to choose between Whitney Houston's live Star Spangled Banner or any Dolly Parton recording of Star Spangled Banner or a third choice. Like a third choice that's anything I would choose that's not that? Correct. Oh, my God. This is tough. Um, Listen, there is no version of the Star Spangled Banner that's better than Whitney Houston's live recording, period, full stop. However, as a separate conversation, like I did listen to Dolly Parton's in the light of a clear blue morning today on the way to work. And I was like tears in my eyes driving on the bridge, which was not safe, but it reaches me. So I don't know. It's like body of work. I'm picking Dolly, but Star Spangled Banner, I'm with Whitney. I'll take it. I just, (laughs) that's a hard one. I just remember saying, like looking at the Star Spangled Banner, the actual thing at the Smithsonian for the first time. And I was like, wow, this is huge. But also like, why are we spending this much money to restore it? That's not a safe thing to say, but I'm just saying. I love that flag. Okay. Remember when Tom Cruise said, I love this woman. I love that flag. Is this going to come to a similar end as Tom Cruise and that (laughs) woman? (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) I can't wait to hear about this. All right. Um, All right, everyone. Welcome to American Girls, the podcast. (laughs) This is the series where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. Star Spangled Allison, perhaps. Star Spangled Katie Holmes, perhaps. Kate Holmes, if you recall. Kate Tomes, yes. I, you know, we spent part of this week rewatching a Nicole Kidman classic, and you gave us some insight into where she was. It was filmed in the twilight years of her marriage to Mr. Tom Cruise. I don't know. I just feel like I'm waiting for the expose on Tom Cruise and Caroline Abbott's dad. I think we all are. Will we ever get the expose we deserve about Caroline Abbott's dad? Probably not, unless we write it ourselves. Will we ever get the expose we deserve about grandma? Definitely not. No. No. Absolutely not. This book is called Caroline's Battle, but I'm going to say it's really all of ours. Wow. That's (laughs) intense. I've never thought about the War of 1812 on those terms, but yeah, I'll go with that. I'm open to it. What else are you into besides, you know, Dolly Parton on the highway? Dolly Parton on the highway is like, that's a tragic scene for me. So I'm I'm living through that. I will say as a podcast episode I just listened to today or finished it, I should say that a lot of people actually sent me was um, the latest episode of Maintenance Phase. Have you ever listened mm. to that? Yes. And they just did an episode on Angela Lansbury's fitness lifestyle book and video, which is available on YouTube. I've seen choice scenes of it. And I don't know if I've told you this, but I did receive a self-published book by a former writer on Murder, She Wrote, co-creator, excuse me, who recorded his own like time with the show, which is as close as I can get at this time to like life on the set. And he did mention that Angela felt, you know, like that she didn't like how she looked on screen in season one. And I spoke aloud to the book and said, like, I can't believe this. And so <laughs> this episode of Maintenance Pays kind of like filled in the gaps here because it's kind of her fitness program which she does like free movement and it's it's a lot but I was relieved that they didn't totally trash her because obviously like I love her and it's complicated 
but that was that was really interesting it's like 80s fitness culture which is mostly a disaster but angela came Ooh. through it they called her the anti-goop which i respected but okay, okay. And i recently finished only murders in the building season one very much enjoyed that um i don't know what about you allison what are you into oh wait i just need to say one last thing yes Warren goff's new book it's amazing just gonna leave it there i can't can i remember the title off the top of my head absolutely not but well, i mean the, that's not why you're not saying it it's because you need people to do their own work that's right do the do the googling for yourself go on the search which in a way is mirroring the message of the book which is about a 12th century nun who takes over a struggling convent and she becomes like basically a girl boss who's also a mystic and i'm making it sound I'm not giving a great description of this book, but it's she's like an illegitimate child of a French prince and like basically niece of Eleanor of Aquitaine. And then Eleanor parks her at a convent that's failing and she turns it into a huge success and like makes it something like gives her life meaning sideways becomes a mystic. There's a lot of queer stuff in the book, but it's just like it's I can't even describe it. It's so good. It's one of those books when you know when you're so in a book that you're like, I will stay up late until I finish this. Or like, I can't yes. wait till I can steal five minutes to peek into this book because I'm so into it. I haven't had that thrill with a book in a long time. So if anyone's read any of her previous books, you know how great a writer she is. But it was so good. Anyway, that's where I'm at. How are, what are you into these days? Well, I recently read The Husbands by Chandler Baker, which is a really funny and really insightful book. I've been reading a bunch of books that are all new to like this part of 2021 and I'm finding almost all of them were written during COVID and it's interesting to see like who acknowledges that and who doesn't. Hmm. Uh, Leanne Moriarty's brand new book, Apples Will Fall. Apples Won't Fall? I don't know. Oh yeah, how is that? That's on my to read list. So it ends up in a timeline where COVID does happen. And I do find it really interesting how authors are dealing with that or not, right? Like the choice when they're mm. writing during COVID. I read 56 Days, which was set explicitly in a COVID quarantine situation and really liked it. With this particular Moriarty book, and I feel burned by the finale of Nine Perfect Strangers, which was a complete disservice to books. <laughs> um that said, I liked the book. I think you could have shaved off a hundred or so pages, but I found it interesting. Like it took me by surprise and that was something I didn't want to happen, right? Like COVID was enough of a surprise in real life. I was surprised that the timeline that lined up ended up including COVID and I did not care for that, right? Like I mm. think part of American Girl is we can Google the actual dates and learn what was going on. Like, you tell me Caroline lives in 1812 in a port town, I know what I'm in for. Mm -hmm. Like, you set a book vaguely in the here and now, and I don't know if you're going to pull COVID on me. And if you are, I want it in chapter one. Like, I want to know that I'm entering a COVID overlapping narrative. Like you almost want like a parental sensory, like advisory yeah. sticker that's like, there will be COVID in this book. Yeah. I mean, people who have been going through our back catalog or like dropping in on the show at different times have commented on like how we talked about COVID a year ago or over a year ago when it was new. As you recall, we interviewed an Aries and we were like, this will not last an Aries birthday season. It has lasted too. So I think it's kind of like 
that is something though that people can see the date during which we recorded i was like leanne you're in australia i just did not expect this from you because she's on another continent you're like (laughs) come on leanne like where is the kangaroo i'm kidding i'm kidding i know people from australia are are contain many magnitudes and uh they write stories with linguistic and accent challenges for nicole kidman which is another gift but you know so i i really enjoyed those books and a few other thrillers that i've been reading and been reading a book called All Together Now, which is about a group of friends who reunite when they find out their billionaire friend has fallen ill. I'll just say, like, if you have ever been my friend and you're a billionaire now and you need to take me on a beach vacation, like, I do have the time. <laughs> like, I can take maybe the those time people are out there. <laughs> I mean, it's not like, me, but I mean, maybe some of no, like, but it could know be. somebody. It, it could, could be. be, I guess. If you know a billionaire, say something. Yes. Well, I feel like that's also like, that's like how a lot of Agatha Christie mysteries start too, where it's like, oh my God, like, you know, our childhood friend Teddy who like made a fortune in the war selling like, I don't know. Chocolate bars. Yeah. And you're like, uh, this isn't going (laughs) to end well for that guy probably. Oh my God. Miri, like, could you make a better segue? War profiteers, if I may. (sighs) Please, you know, take us away. (laughs) Bon voyage. Let's go. (laughs) There, there might be endless things to say about Caroline's battle or nothing. I mean, you'll find out when you see the timestamps on this podcast. I mean, I think O-Town said it best when they said, I want it all or nothing at all. Right? Yes. So they actually took that, interestingly, from Francis Scott Key. That was mm-hmm. the first draft of the Star-Spangled Banner. He was being yes. kept on a ship in Baltimore Harbor. And, and so he's just kind of like thinking through these things. And, and that's actually in that first iteration. Makes sense. I mean, it, that's more appropriate for the kids than Liquid Dreams, I guess, would be. Yeah, I'm going to choose to not think about what that song is about. <laughs> that's for the best. Just don't <laughs> Thank do you. It. <laughs> Hello, everyone. It's that magical time in the show when I get to remind you about HelloFresh. You know, for most of my life, I've just been, to paraphrase Julia Roberts in Notting Hill, a woman standing in front of her cabinet asking it to order her pizza. And, you know, HelloFresh has really turned that around for me. It's truly so easy to make something that feels somewhat healthy and like a home-cooked meal with little to no effort. The holidays can be hectic, as we all know they're coming up, but HelloFresh helps keep things simple with recipes and ingredients that cut out grocery shopping and limit meal prep time so you can spend more of the festive season with friends and family. And who doesn't want to do that at this point? And look, HelloFresh isn't just for meals if that's not your bag. Their marketplace features a variety of add-ons for breakfast, desserts, and seasonal snacks like Pillsbury Pumpkin Cookie Dough. My God, dessert is truly my gateway drug, so I definitely will be checking that out. If you want to join me, go to HelloFresh.com slash AmericanGirls14 and use code AmericanGirls14 for up to 14 free meals and and three free gifts. My God, what's that? That's HelloFresh.com slash AmericanGirls14 and use code AmericanGirls14 for up to 14 free meals. And that's right, three free gifts. And now back to the show. So speaking of liquid dreams, this is yet another important moment in Caroline's evolution from girl to girl boss to ship captain. Chapter book finds us in the next year, right? So we're past 1812. 
Caroline's father has just returned when they receive frightening news. British warships are sailing to attack Sackett's Harbor. Ah! Every grown man, including Papa, has been called to defend the village. I'm going to challenge that claim, but we'll get back to that. Mama and Caroline are left alone to guard Abbott's shipyard as the battlefront draws ever closer. Caroline knows she must be brave to keep Papa's shipyard safe. But when the battle seems lost, Mama gives her a terrible order. Burn the shipyard to the ground. Will Caroline really be able to do what must be done? The illustrated Looking Back section discusses the writing of the Star-Spangled Banner and the burning of the White House during the War of 1812. That's, it's stunning because it's like, what didn't happen in this book? (laughs) This book is a quintessential earth-wind fire. We start in a garden. Wind is what actually allows them to not lose everything because the British ships that should be attacking them just can't move. I'm going to say this. I feel like Caroline's mom really just wanted to start a fire. I think she has a lot of pent up energy that's coming out sideways and no one's really dealing with that. No, we open with Caroline walking outside because inverted commas, her father needs to sleep. Grandmother is like, we got to get out of the house. Dad needs to sleep. We, interestingly, don't move that far ahead in the timeline from book four to book five. Like, basically, Dad has just been rescued. They choose to not advance the timeline too much. A kind of moment that I loved is Caroline goes outside, and there is this reflective moment where it says, Grandmother had sent Caroline outside to make sure that Papa could continue sleeping. Actually, Caroline didn't think Mrs. Shaw needed to know that. Like, she bumps into a neighbor and she's like, hey, Mrs. Shaw, I'm so excited. There's carrots growing. Papa will be able to eat those carrots, which is like a beautiful recognition of his return. And Mrs. Shaw is like, why are you running around the town? And she only will acknowledge that she's just like psyched to have dad home. And she's like, I'm making too much noise. I've been kicked out. Not telling Mrs. Shaw. Damn. It is a weird opening scene where you're like, why can't, like, why could this book not have started when he came downstairs for breakfast, which is like the Mm, next scene? Because he's passed out. What do you think? (laughs) What do you think is happening? I think this book's subtitle would be The Emasculation of Papa because he comes back and realizes he was not as missed as perhaps hoped. Like, emotionally, he was missed. But we have this telling line uh, referring to kind of what's been going on, which is that Mama took charge right away, page nine. Like, they're kind of catching Dad up slowly. Like, they're only doling information out bit by bit. Like, Caroline has already broken the news that she killed the skiff that he loved. Basically, Mom is not willing to let Dad know that she has not only taken over the shipyard, it's thriving. Like, they are, they seem anxious to let him know that. And there's another line, like, 10 or so pages later, where the mom reminds Caroline, like, nobody has to know what we've done. She's like, there's a lot of locked up records. Dad never has to know. Well, and she also boots Caroline. So, like, dad comes down, he has breakfast, and he's (laughs) like, okay, heading to the shipyard. And they're like, hey, like, what's your hurry? Like, maybe you should chill out a couple days and rest. And he's like, this is my business. Like, I was the whole, for like a year, like terrified I would come back and it would be gone. And like, clearly mom is like, oh God, like, 
this is going to be bad. And basically then there's a scene where Caroline, he goes to the shipyard. He's like, that's it. We're going to the shipyard. So they all go with him. <laughs> but Caroline, the thing that she calls our attention to is that uh, is his limp. And right. she has this recognition of like, it's probably going to be permanent. And that kind of starts the depiction of Papa in the book is like emasculated, but also like that's mapped on to disability. And then they get to the shipyard and it's like, oh God, he goes in and see the moment when he is speechless is not when he sees the gunboat being built, not that he sees all his workmen are like there and they're thriving and they have stuff to do. He seems proud of that. It's when he sees the books. Yes. And that's when Mama's like, uh, we're going to go take a walk. We're going to leave Papa alone for a little while. <laughs> because much like in many situations throughout United States history, there might be a notion that the mother is just keeping a stasis, right? That his wife is just keeping things going. When in actuality, through Caroline and Mother Abbott's efforts, things have been better than ever. And they're kind of afraid for him to confront that. Yeah, it kind of was like a sad conduit to so many workplace letters you read, like Ask a Manager or the writing in Helen Peterson's done or like her really great Insta stories and stuff like that where people are sharing things anonymously where it's like a lot of women are saying like, I have to do a lot of emotional caretaking of like the my male boss or like men in my office that goes like unacknowledged, but it's sort of like implicitly required of me. And in that moment, it's like Caroline's mom is clearly doing some deep emotional caretaking at her own expense. Um, and you just kind of wonder, like, well, those feelings of not being appreciated or having to, mm -hmm. like, swallow your own accomplishment, like, that's going to that's going somewhere. That's not going away. It's going to no, come out. The notion that he has to go defend the village, I think he does feel a kind of deep rooted call to actually take care of the place. Like, if we're being totally real, right, if we accept the fact that he was the person who really, like, spearheaded a lot on the shipyard and he's been away, him staying would be completely justified. I feel like he's taking his absolute first chance to get out of Dodge. Yeah. Like, to get out of the house? Like, to get away from the shipyard. Like, I think so much has changed, and I think the actual deep confrontation in much the same way that Molly McIntyre's father returns, but it's essentially off screen. We don't actually have time to process or literally even see that reunion and kind of the family reconciling what it means to have him back. Papa's just out. Like, it's been a week. Yeah, I also just think, like, there's a really gendered thing going on that's been happening in all of these books, which is, like, the women in the books, like, d like prove themselves through caretaking. Yeah. And, like, we see these, like, really domestic scenes, like, grandma's doing the most, like, in every single book. Like, she's cutting up a rug to fire a cannon. She's, like, making all kinds of meals, whatever. And the men in the book seem to prove themselves through, like, professional achievement. And I feel like the dad, because he was caught and he's been in prison and then he escaped, but he was injured. Like, I think there's so much masculinity stuff going on where he's like, and now I have to prove myself through this, like, accepted way of being like super macho and a man like where's my musket like i must go defend this town <laughs> not that it's not real like you're saying i think he does feel real need to protect his family but i think it's interesting that the choice of protection he chooses affords him this like masculinity display and to be with other men right, right. not to protect his literal family but he's like i need to go be with these other men like with my musket like mom get in the root cellar like i'm doing this 
What's interesting, though, about his very brief return and then almost immediate departure, it's like he's like a coming and goings area of the airport. It's like, is he here? Is he gone? When is he coming back next? Grandmother immediately steps back into her mode, which is her decision to supply her daughter and granddaughter with not only sustenance, but a pistol to protect themselves at the shipyard. There are so many things about Caroline's mother and grandmother that I kind of love on this read of the books, which is that they both seem to have these like very rich interior lives that they're not letting anyone inside. And they are both probably good candidates for double agents or or kind of just whatever they're doing. Like there was a pretty big debate this past weekend between two uh, preeminent male historians about the American Revolution, largely as a tantrum against the 1619 Project and their own issues. And I would just say, like, one of the big debates that's come up is who are the founders? Where's Caroline's grandma in that combo? Mm-hmm. I mean, every time she comes into the book and she says, like, literally any word, I'm like, when do we get the grandma biopic? Like, when do we get... (laughs) Like, I want to read the series of American Girl books that's following Caroline's mother as a girl growing up with a widowed, like, a widowed veteran of the American Revolution. Like, herself also a revolutionary who is doing, like, the hard work of, like, she didn't fall on the battlefield. Like, she lived. And that was, like, actually probably harder and where is her story and like the intergenerational story of like a widow and her daughter and how they have to like do things that like maybe she lived in new jersey and got to vote until 1807 when that was stripped (laughs) away like i don't know like what what was she doing i don't know if you think this is her first time packing a gun in with family sustenance to survive a siege in a shipyard i'm sorry but grow up Like, if you really think this is her first time, I think she's one of the more interestingly written characters that we've come across. We've been fond of most of the grandmothers. The back cover is the grandmother kind of just looking at Caroline, like, get it together. Like, you've had your book with the hoop and stick. You've had your time ice skating. Grandma's like, I loved being on the sled. I I won't deny that for a second. She's like... I loved our time this winter on the sled, but it's time to grow up. You're 10 and a half, maybe 11. Your mother's pretty much prepared to burn down the entire family business. (laughs) She's like, I'm there with her. Have a pistol. I'm there with her. I'm ready to do whatever is happening. There is also this kind of fascinating growth with Caroline where she makes a ton of declarative statements in this book, like I think more so than in any other. We've seen her do a lot of kind of internal monologuing, like, is this what I should do? Is this how I should teach Rhonda how to fish? How do I manipulate her into ice skating? If you get towards the the back end of this story, there's this entire page where it's almost sentence after sentence where she says to herself and others, I'm not hurt. I will not run. And then something she's told is the shed does not matter. Like everyone has just kind of gotten this crystal clear clarity after this siege essentially that happens or or doesn't happen, this near miss. And I find this scene of her saying like, I'm not hurt. I will not run to be sort of reminiscent of the way Josefina kind of like tried to take care of her dad and to work out some feelings. As you recall, Josefina broke something and was like, I am ashamed. Mm hmm. The Caroline version of this is, I'm not hurt. Like, I'm not hurt. I will not run. And it's like, girl, like, who are you trying to convince? 
Yeah. And I think in both instances, as you're pointing us to, like, there's sort of like a an emotional world in which any response that's that, not that has they've non-verbally signaled is unacceptable. Yeah. Like adults yeah. in her life have signaled to her without words in the same way that Josefina like totally understands without people telling her like any response that's not shame is inappropriate. Caroline understands that anything that's not bravado or total like absolute dedication and courage and willingness to sacrifice everything is the wrong response. Like it's fascinating to me that we've been having all of these moments between Caroline and the grandmother that are completely nonverbal where we right. just get Caroline's internal reading of the situation where she's like, and grandma looked at me and it was very clear <laughs> that she wanted me to like X, Y, Z. And you're like, was it clear? Like, I don't know. Like they're developing things, this weird, like telepathic relationship. And in this book, it's like, grandma was telling me that I should stay with mom, like down at the shipyard. And she gave me the gun. I don't know. It's like almost like a lifetime movie where you're like, wait a second. Like what there's like, <laughs> weird parenting that feels inappropriate as part of like some kind of true crime planet thriller. But it's like, did grandma have the pistol in her pocket the entire, like this whole yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, let's say the mail is late. Grandma's ready. Let's say the oh British God. are coming again in her lifetime. Grandma is ready. A thing that was really kind of striking me as very interesting about this book in particular is... For two books in a row now, we've had this, like, extremely close-up threat of the British, right? Famously, there's the book The Whites of Their Eyes, right? The proximity of these wars that people are fighting or the fact that these ships are coming so close nearby. And what was interesting to me about the way Caroline is responding, first of all, she does say a naughty word in this book. What's the word? So Marmy taught me that we don't say blast and wretch. And on page 25, she says blast the British, which, you know, it just kind of took me wow. aback as, as a, you know, a woman of a certain, you know, Age era. Yeah. So, you know, just putting that out there about Caroline. But I did find it kind of interesting. They talk about the fact that there's a thousand men, right? Like that there's this kind of threat of a thousand men and they say hateful British And I kind of thought to myself, and I I think this is where it's hard to get past our own conceptualization of the British as allies for the past 100 plus years. I get that they are committing wrong deeds, right? Like they are committing deeds that are wrong to these people. But it does almost kind of seem like, what are you guys actually fighting about? I know that's literally the entire historiography of the War of 1812, and I know what they are actually fighting about, but it felt almost like such a straw man. It was like, wait, what? Like, what are yeah. you What are you doing? This book, more than anything else, I was like, wow, this is sort of like the fog of war to me, where I was like, what is all, what are we doing here? Right, right. What you know? is the end game? Because it seems to be just sort of a game of battleship over and over. Right. And it's almost like waiting for Godot, except God, it's like the British, where it's like, are they going to come or not? And like, are they even out there? And what is it that, like, what is the crux of the conflict between us? Because at a very, like, nuclear level, it just comes down to, like, they either want to take our shipyard or they don't, or like, and we won't let them. That's it. That's right. what this whole war is in this moment. Nothing else really matters. And I don't know. I mean, in a way, it's like, wow, this is primal. Like, and I'm sure in a sense, like the how insular the, the motives were is probably true to the period. Like people's like, you know, imagined worlds were not did not extend like that far behind beyond their homes. 
So things that are that primal and related to their day to day life like that would those stakes would matter the most. But on a, so then it's kind of like, well, it dislocates you from how you learned about it in school because you're like, well, this isn't about, you know, like unfinished business with the revolution like it is, yeah. but it's not. There's also I found a pretty notable passage where Caroline is able to observe that there are indigenous allies that are coming with the British. And that is mentioned very briefly. And then when there is kind of hate spewed at this group of people, it is only toward the British. It's kind of a very notable exclusion when you flip from one page to the next, right? We, we learn that this is actually a group of not just British soldiers or British seamen. It's, it's actually indigenous people from that area. And I think that might be kind of the biggest untold story in this book, like joking aside about grandma, the fact that part of the larger context of these wars is the extremely aggressive expansion of the United States across the continent Mm. and what that means for displaced people. Because I, I think it was a brilliant choice, right? Like it's a brilliant choice. You have to pick a place like Sackett's Harbor. You have to focus this narrative. You have to add daddy issues because it's American Girl, Right. You have to have some internalized stuff being worked out between mom, grandma, dad, Caroline, who is 11. You know, she should really take on imperial angst. But the fact that Sackett's Harbor is kind of like an enclosed arena, right? It's not the entirety of a coast is really smart. That said, one thing that as an adult reader that I'm curious about, it's not a criticism of what doesn't go on in this book, is the other kind of battlefronts and literal frontiers that are surrounding this. Because this is like, it's not a remote place, but it is closed off, right? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and the choice of this location, too, in some ways, I don't know if this impacted her choice, but it absolves the United States from culpability if you had picked a different location. Like, to tell this story in Florida or anywhere in the South is going to look really different for the United States. Like, we're going to seem, it's going to be that much more obvious that we are playing a role as colonizers ourselves at this point with indigenous people and just how deeply enmeshed we are in slavery. Which I should say that there is work in the War of 1812 on slavery. It's not in these books because it's not, I guess, I don't know the the numbers or the rates of how many enslaved people lived in the area in that time. I would have to look that up. But there's really interesting. There's been some exhibits on Maryland and slavery in mm-hmm. World War II, War of 1812 and and so on. A lot of work on Andrew Jackson, obviously. But you know, so it's like that choice is curious for that reason. Like, is she trying to like? Did the brand kind of push her to tell a story that doesn't make the U.S. look that bad? I think they wanted a ship girl. I mean that seriously. I think they wanted this kind of maritime story. I think War of 1812 is really hard. And I think if you're going to have someone who is up close with the maritime drama of that war, she needs to live in a place like this. And I also think, you know, I think your points are all completely valid. And I also imagine there's a preface to every one of these books that explains that Canada, the way you might think of it, is not how Canada is a construct 200 plus years ago. I think it would get extremely confusing if it was situated. And then that's not a cop out. But I think if it was situated in a slightly different geographic area, the messiness of a war that also really is incredibly hard to understand would be even harder. 
On her blog, she talked. Kathleen Ernst talks about connecting with people at Sackets Harbor Battlefield State Historic Site, and that she got to spend a ton of time with interpreters and reenactors. And I think part of why she explains that she chose this place is it allowed her to situate civilians in danger, but only to a point. Hmm. Like, those are my words, but, like, do we actually want to see Caroline get kidnapped on a ship? Probably not, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, like, having a cousin and having a father be put in danger, I think, are a little bit more palatable. She also explained that she kind of chose to write this this way because she wanted to show three generations of women. That That was part of what she was going for, and I think if it wasn't here... Connie Porter kind of like aced it with Philadelphia. I don't know that you could really do that again and and remotely compete. So I respect that choice. I think this place makes sense for telling a maritime story that you can kind of get. I think if you weren't as attached to the maritime story, but you wanted to tell a War of 1812 (laughs) story, like I love a maritime story. I'm happy that they're doing it. But I'm just kind of like imagining like other settings for a War of 1812 story. And my favorite piece of these books is that it is a three generations of women's story. I think that's really special. And I kind of wonder what it would be like if she had actually said it in Hartford, like no shade, not Mm. just saying because I'm from Connecticut, but New England obviously was like more opposed to the War of 1812 than for it. And I think there would be a really interesting intergenerational story if you had grandma who was at like Breed's Hill or Bunker Hill, lost her husband in the revolution. Her daughter is like anti-war. And then the granddaughter is like, I don't know how to feel because grandma's telling me like we have to go hard for America because grandpa died to like create it. And mom's like saying this is a bad idea and mom and dad are against the war. And how, where do, how do I feel? How am I supposed to feel about this? Like, that would have been like almost my version of like the 1960s miniseries starring Julia yes, Stiles, yes. but in the War of 1812. Did you know, as an adult, Caroline will be very active in the campaign to not annex Texas, and she will walk up to a soldier with a teeny tiny piece of carpeting oh and homage to her childhood with a flower on the carpeting. Actually, it's a braided rug. And she walks up to a soldier and she goes right up to his musket and she shoves part of that rug in. And she says, I'm not against the soldiers. Soldiers, I'm against against the the annexation of Texas. (gasps) Oh, my God. Yes. We're not even going to talk about the spot resolutions because we can go a podcast without talking about the spot resolutions. We can't, though. Important, important piece. I need to say this. I was reading pretty much every review of this book that I could find on the internet. And at the end, we are going to drop in our wonderful friend Katie's review of this story. She did an awesome job. People gave this book almost like universally on sites where they're actually reviewing it, not just complaining about Amazon Prime. Four and five stars. A baffling one star review that I found says, quote, a very interesting book. This book had very scary moments of battle against the British Empire. I recommended this book to Greer Thompson. I loved this book. Eight exclamation points followed by five dollar signs. I really love, love, love this very cool book. Six exclamation points. Wow. Who is Greer? Is she in the pocket of, like, the queen? Maybe. Um, Lots doing with that. People went all out. Reviewer Eva, who's... Oh, I've read a lot of her reviews. 
She says, a lot of the more modern girls don't have the gut-punching stories the older and historical ones do, and that's too bad. And I think, Eva, that's because asking a child to commit a major act of arson during a war is kind of frowned upon for a kid like Blair, but maybe I'm narrow-minded. Well, if you think about it, I mean, in some ways, like, the greatest tragedies are, like, like the smallest acts hold the greatest tragedy. And in a way, I do think there's something Freudian happening with her only destroying the remnant of her own destruction. Like, she, yeah. the only place she destroyed was the shed of that, you know, whatever it was called that she destroyed in book three, question mark, four. I can't keep them all straight. Would you but, burn the shipyard down? Um... Well, that's an interesting question. I was actually thinking about this in terms of the history of the insurance industry and some of the earliest insurance was fire insurance. Had we had fire insurance on the shipyard, yeah, I would have burned it to the ground because I'm thinking to myself, this war can't go on much longer. And rather, like, would I rather accept the profit of one gunboat or the insurance payout of this entire shipyard with its potential, future potential earnings? Just saying. You know I don't need any inducement. Like I, you I like think matches I, recreationally, so which scares us all. But <laughs> so you would be like right there. <laughs> you would be right there. Well, I think there's actually like a really interesting parody in this book, which is we. The main crux of the book is about how Caroline's mom is about to is like literally does not need a reason to burn this entire operation to the no. ground. Like after actually create like building it up, making it bigger than it was when her husband was in charge. Theoretically, I didn't get a peek at the books myself, but I'll I'll give her that. She's ready to destroy it. At the end of the book, in the peek into the past, we get the like very played out anecdote of Dolly Madison saving the portrait of George Washington from the White House. Actually, like her enslaved people did that, but regardless, she led that effort. So what we have here is like, we're saving this portrait because he's the father of our nation. And the yes. father of our nation is like regarded as being a creator. The book itself is a plot line about how the mother of this family and this business is going to define her motherhood by destruction and fire. I don't know what to make of these two things being together, but I do think there's some kind of meaning there. Are you suggesting that much like in the way that enslaved people actually did everything for Dolly? Except like she did, she did make the call, but... Hosea is featured, Hosea Barton is featured in the front part of this book. Where is this man? Like, I feel like we are being told shockingly little about his behavior because Mama is maybe taking credit for things he did. That's interesting. I'm open to it. Like, us learning about him making the sled and helping Caroline with the hoop and other staff personnel being called to do her, like, acts of whimsy, I think those are actually all decoys so that we don't keep our eye on the prize, which is the fact that Hosea Barton wants to commit a Robert Smalls, if you catch my drift, and, like, liberate people all over New Canada or Upper Canada. I am really sorry, Canadians, that part is hard for me to grasp. I think that's his next play. And mom is like, I will burn this whole place down. Yeah. She's like, I will stop it right now. There's a fascinating part in the peak in the past too, where they mentioned that the British soldiers had dinner in the White House. And I found that part to be written kind of strangely because it almost seemed to suggest that like that was the bad part. <laughs> they ate their dinner. <laughs> it was like, would you believe 
they had dinner in the White House. And it's like, sweetie, if you have enough money, you can have dinner in the White House any night. You can. Yeah. I mean, if you like, technically, it's like if you have access to a drive through we were talking about Wendy's right before we recorded, like you could mm-hmm. just pick up dinner and have it anywhere. Like that's America. You can do that. It's just, it's also weird, too, how that was written, because they made it seem like James Madison could have been there, but chose not right. to be. <laughs> right. Like, like much like he the was, dad. It, he was around, but, like, he just kind of was like, Dolly, look, I'm going to leave this to you because <laughs> it's kind of getting hot around here. I got to go. So to that point, right, because we've talked about Dolly Madison on other episodes, I will not stop talking about Francis Scott Key until asked, and and then I will stop talking about him. But I was reading an article about his family's background and the fact that he came from a family of enslavers and that that is where his wealth came from and how he established his business partially in the law in the Baltimore, Maryland area was this wealth, right, from the slave trade and directly from holding people in bondage, not not unlike the Madisons, right? And I was reading controversy over the Star Spangled Banner. And I, I know that the past few years there have been a lot of a lot more, I think, like important conversations about that. What did you make of the very final page of this book? Now I have to go like look knowing, at it knowing what we know now we'll we'll have to post this because i I think it's one of the more interesting peek into the past images that we've ever gotten hold on um it's a lot of kids holding a flag with their fists in the air yeah tell tell us more it looks like a coca-cola ad but say more it's a Coca-Cola ad, but it also seems to... You could do a reading of this image that's like, oh, this is a mimic of, like, the 1968 Olympic protests, like, Black Power protests, because there's, like, fists in the air. But at the same time, you could read it as, like, an Old Navy ad from the 4th of July. It's, like, impossible to say. So the kids are sloppily holding up the flag. I don't really love the way the flag is being treated in that photo, but that's just me. And they're in this kind of, like, bleacher situation. There's a few kids who, let's be honest, they're not really holding up their commitment. Like, the child in the blue polo is not really pulling it out for the moment. He's, like, with it, though. He's got his hands up. Like, he couldn't get a hand on the flag, but I'll give it to him. So we learn on this page that it was during FDR's administration that the song officially becomes a national anthem. And what's interesting is this note, some citizens were against the song. They wanted a peaceful anthem, not one about war. Actually, a lot of the controversy was directly related to the fact of Key's wealth, right? Where where Francis got Key got his wealth from. And honestly, no one in 1931 was clamoring for War of 1812 content. Like, that just it's never going to happen. It says, the Star Spangled Banner touched many people's hearts. Today, when Americans sing it, the words are reminders of the heroic men and women who have defended our country during wartime. The final words, the land of the free and the home of the brave, also make us think about what freedom means and the ways that ordinary people can be brave. Is that what you think of when you hear those words? No, but... This I mean, is like it's... a DBQ. <laughs> well, I mean, what do you make of that? I don't think you're going to like my answer. Just tell me. I I cry every time I hear it in person. I do. I, I find it. <laughs> okay. No, that's like fine. Um, I was watching videos of it before we recorded and I was like, I was like fully crying and then I had to take the trash out. Um, 
that might be a metaphor for the United States, but um, I find protests of the song incredibly moving. I cry when I see those. I find performances of the song very moving. I think it epitomizes like what makes this country hard to love, but also why it is worth it. Like, like that is why I find it a very compelling song. I was with a group of, of friends and we were going to a baseball game and I, I think not responding to the song is patriotic. I think responding to the song is patriotic. I think kneeling is patriotic. I personally like put my hand over my heart. I take my hat off. I've, I've been to places in uniform where that's also expected and I, I personally do it. I take it as a time to think, right? Like to think about different things that are happening also totally respect that there are people who don't do that for their own reasons. I I find it very emotional. Like I am also very open to it not being our national song, but I think the fact that the words do ring so hollow is what makes it compelling to think about, right? Like the fact that we see these kids holding the flag with the lyrics of the song and we kind of cringe because it's so untrue. I think that's what makes it a useful document, like a a living part of our story. Yeah, I mean, I think kind of what you're describing all makes sense to me in the sense that like, I think anything that has to do with patriotism or nationalism, it becomes almost like a Rorschach test or, you know, like something that people project a lot of feelings onto. Of course, it makes you emotional. Like, I think it makes I it makes me emotional, like things like that work on me. But it's like everyone can feel a lot of things at the same time. So even as like I might feel emotional, like if I hear a really nice rendition of that song, you know, it's also, as you're saying, like emotional to see Colin Kaepernick protesting it and Megan Rapino like kneeling during it as well. And also like knowing how they've been like attacked in very vicious ways for a, a basic act where to me it's like the measure of how you love something is how willing like how much you're willing to hold it to account and yeah. that's what they're doing and I think that's what the anthem reminds me of like not that I don't love being an American citizen or believe in like the home truths and freedoms that are promised at you know in Caroline's lifetime but I think it as you're saying as you listen to, th- to the lines of the song you might just think about the measure between the promise and how it's kept. Um, I feel like Bruce Springsteen right now, but like that's basically what all of his songs are about too. So, I mean, I think that's real, you know, I don't, I think it's sort of like a moving target. It depends like what's happening on that particular day, you know, how you're feeling. The Smithsonian did a great article about Francis Scott Key and noted that when he wrote that song, right, like when he was being detained in the harbor and he sees, right, the rocket's red glare and and he has this kind of moment, there were all around him fugitives from slavery trying to liberate themselves, right? And, and I think it's like, that's what makes this a country, right? Like, like it is that contradiction that makes that song and the fact that there are people who never hear it critically or always hear it critically. It's like, that's that's the, the tough part, right? It's like, that's the reason why you need historians. That's the reason why people read these books and think about them because there are all of these contradictions in the same song. But I also kind of appreciate the extent to which like it's a promise that's not fulfilled, right? Like it's a benchmark that has not been met, but this idea of kind of like 
people are willing to listen to people endlessly debate the American Revolution because if it had fulfilled every promise, we wouldn't need to have the conversation. Right. I mean, it'd be nice if it had done that, but, you know, true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the same is kind of true of, like, Born in the USA, where, like, there are people who listen to that song and are like, this is about how America's amazing. And it's like, I'm sorry, did you listen to the words of this song? But it's because, like, the sound of the music (laughs) is so, like, you know, drum banging, etc. Like, 80s Casio keyboards. It feels very patriotic. So it's kind of like the music is leading your emotions in one direction and then the words are taking you in a different direction. And I don't know. I mean, I like things that kind of give you something to think with. But as you're saying, I think like the worst interaction with the Star Spangled Banner are just people who passively sit there and don't think about it at all. So, yeah, you know, I don't know how common that is, but. Yeah, I mean, I think the Pledge of Allegiance has a very different kind of overtone and layer, which is you're being asked, right, to make an oath to make a promise to your country and particularly if that country is one that you just can't believe in right there there are people who protest that there are people who protest the star-spangled banner but i think part of what's interesting about a song versus an oath or a pledge is it's an opportunity for interpretation which is why lady gaga singing it is different than when it would have been sung back in the 19th century is different from whitney houston like i think if there wasn't something to hearing it sung live and performed like the way that whitney houston sings it there's a profound suggestion there that this whole kind of notion of like the land of the free and the home of the brave is just patently a lie right Mm -hmm. but that the brave part might be true even if the free part isn't it's like i think that's why people people are drawn to it like there's a lot of elements that make it a not terribly good song um i was in a museum workshop and we had to talk about our most like profound museum experience and this guy who said he'd been in the field for like 40 years said that Fort McHenry was like one of his most powerful experiences because he felt like he was so jaded right like he'd seen everything he'd seen holograms he'd seen videos and he said you know I I really was never surprised anymore and then he watched a video about Fort McHenry and what he went through and a flag started to rise up and he was like it so took me aback because I'm not a patriotic person I'm not a person who like buys into propaganda but if there wasn't a subtle or unconscious power to it people wouldn't do it that's this true. is not me being like pro you know star spangled banner it's just like the 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 truth for me okay also I kept thinking about Dido the whole time I read this book uh, white flag yeah <laughs> no stan <laughs> or an m&m driving off the road no. oh my god that would be quite an image um yes indeed it's my favorite m&m song what stan yeah of course oh my god that song is like that really like freaks me out that song it's like so real i don't know how we allowed that on the radio I mean, we allowed a lot of things on the radio. It's like, that's it's true. difficult. It's interesting because it's like the dad came back in this book and you think like, actually, if the mom's pose is to be believed, she really wants to give the dad the platform to be the yeah. leader of the family. And yet what this story is actually about is how the women have once again saved the day. And whatever yes. the dad has done is off stage. So we learn on the last page 
Caroline felt ready to face whatever might come. And I just thought, my word, if this girl has to stop another British warship, I will lose it. I mean, it's just she's been given a lot of responsibility in this book. Like, it's it's kind of bonkers. <laughs> I also just wondered, like, why Grandma didn't leave her in the root cellar. Like, she was, like, didn't want to get down there herself and light some stuff up. Grandma knows that when every young girl is at a certain age, she must be handed a weapon of war and asked to deliver beans to her mother. <laughs> I mean, I guess. But it's just, like, I don't know how the rest of Caroline's life can possibly compare to, like, her 11th no. year. Why do you think we had a panic in 1837? Damn. It's true. <laughs> it's probably true. <laughs> I I will just never forget. Like, I need a t-shirt that says, the shed does not matter. I just will, <laughs> will never get over that. The shed does not matter. And then we have, like, a dust on the wind moment where... I love this. I love this about Kathleen Ernst. She's not afraid to go there. They talk about how things are changing, like ash on the breeze. And I was like, you go, girl. Like, Just <laughs> in the wind. Like, she couldn't afford the rights to that. But maybe when the fire is out, she's like, a new fire is starting. Stay tuned. My God. I mean. Who do you think ordered the British to burn down the White House? What do you think Grandma was doing in the cellar? Oh, my God. Wow, I would kind of love that for her. Good for her. <laughs> Me too. Me you know, too. like, what if actually her backstory is, like, her husband was way too into the American Revolution. Yeah. And she was a loyalist and was, or just was, like, indifferent. And was like, let's sit this one out. Let's see how this goes. And instead he was like, nope, I'm joining the Patriot cause, whatever. He gets himself killed. And then she's like, that's it. I will never forgive this United States, these United States for taking my husband from me. I'm going to go deep cover and take it down from within. She grabs a bunch of rockets and she's like, these colors do run. And she just shoots Damn. them off into the air. And that's oh the God. end of Abbott's shipyard. She's like, does anyone even care what my surname is? No, they don't. No. Goodbye, Abbott's shipyard. She's done. Wow. I love that for we her. We would be remiss if we didn't say that we want you to make sure you stay tuned and you listen to our good friend Katie's review, and we love to hear your reviews, so if you have them, you want to send us a voice memo, I would just say, honestly, like, any fierce feedback on Caroline, I'm ready to receive in voice memo format. I love that. If you want to sing the <laughs> national anthem or parts of it, like, we'll play it on the show, I guess. Like, yeah, you know, kind of anywhere of 1812 feedback that you have, any hot takes, conspiracy theories please send it to us. We want to hear from you. Also, if you've worked on a ship, I love reading messages from women who've worked on ships and men, but women especially, it's compelling. I want to hear crazy, like trivial facts about working, real life working on a ship, like stuff people wouldn't expect to, that you have to deal with, weird facts of life living on a ship. Like I would love to hear that. Please send it to us. We'll play it on the show. I love that. Also, if you eat tack on the regular just, I don't know, go to a doctor, but call us also. Okay. I know less about that, but I'm interested. Okay. Cool. So we will be rounding out the Caroline series very soon. We'll be in the thick of like this 1813, 1814 corner. I don't know what to expect. Just change. That's all we can expect in Ash on the Breeze. Wow. I mean, Ash on the Breeze, Dust in the Wind, Grandma in the White House. <laughs> 
if you're a singer songwriter and you think like what's been done with hamilton should be done with this family just call us like give us your concept like write us a broadway book for the abbott family musical like we want to know thank you oh my god is that where abba comes from money 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 wow okay so allison if people would love to talk to you about the star spangled banner and assorted things where might they find you you can reach me at grandma did it just kidding at allison horrocks on twitter and instagram and mary where should they send you other abba tips and or ship facts wow well someone in our discord actually shared a video of the movie dunkirk but over it like they took the audio from mama mia 2 and put it over a scene from dunkirk and it's like quite possibly one of the best things i've ever seen in my life so like that is the kind of content i enjoy and if you have it please send it to me at mimi mahoney on instagram at mary mahoney 123 on twitter we love to hear from you and talk about whatever allison has some show details of how you can reach the show yeah so we're at a girl's pod on twitter we're american girls podcast on instagram you can also reach us on our website where we have a form where you can tell us a little bit more about yourself for kind of our american girl archive we have a telephone number that you may call and notably the caroline craft fair is ongoing we have received dozens of submissions we're putting a little something together if you want to share what you've been working on you can send it to us directly you can also do hashtag Caroline Craft Fair on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, and we'll be sure to look for it there. Awesome. I have not finished mine yet, but I'm looking forward to it. I love it. All right, everyone. Thank you. We'll see you on the next episode. Hi, this is Katie, and these are my comments on Caroline's Battle. So maybe... You thought, well, the last book was pretty intense. And you're not wrong. And maybe you thought Caroline's secret message was really intense. And you're not wrong about that either. But holy crap, this one is intense. I really, really thought she was going to have to burn that shipyard. The torch is on the cover of the book and everything. It's the nick of time that that they find out that everything's okay and and it's going to be safe. Uh, So yeah, here's your saves the day stand in. Throughout this, though, Caroline and her mother and her grandmother, they are a formidable team, all three of them. Uh, I love them all. They are goals, absolute goals. I also really love the point where, uh, as the series has gone on, now we're starting to see some tangible effects of character growth. Caroline's emotional intelligence has really leveled up. She's recognizing now that just as it hurt her to see the Hathaway girls with their father right nearby not that long ago now it's painful for Rhonda to see Caroline with Papa now that he's home but her father is not there's also some really nice discussion around how you go about figuring out what the right thing to do is especially when it contradicts instructions you were given Uh, and it really it feels relatable and it feels honestly really useful for a young audience so it's it's nicely done I am a little bummed that Papa seems to be a little bummed that the women have done so well without him. I can understand maybe a little disappointment that you don't seem to be as necessary to everything running smoothly as maybe you thought, Uh, but it does feel like there's some unexamined patriarchal baggage going on there, which again, it's, it's a bummer. 
And the last thing, uh, structurally, this is the only AG book I know of that picks up the day after the previous book um, and really kind of makes this a sort of a two-part structure in a way that I don't think we've ever seen before. Um, you know, the oldest series are very, very standalone. Uh, and I think we're starting to see them, you know, AG has gotten better and better at building an arc to the point where when we read the Kaya books, it really felt to me like that six book series wanted to be one novel. Um, and in a way, I wonder if that mirrors sort of the development in the TV world over the last well, 35 years, uh, to be more and more long form and long arcs and and moving away from uh, episodic single episode storytelling. Um, and in some cases, it seems like AG is doing something similar. Uh, and that may kind of point us toward the slightly later on uh, the Be Forever era of the mid 2010s where they moved into doing two longer books instead of six shorter ones. Um, so I think that's an interesting thing to track too. That's all. Thank you guys. Bye.